Anyways, uh, should I? Should I still whisper when we start these? Anyway. I don't know. Welcome to Casa Live, everyone. It is Saturday. We are back. We are here. We are live. Welcome and thank you for joining us. See a few familiar faces in chat already. Skip, Adrian, Fa of the QT Ube family. I love Ube. <laughs> for anybody who doesn't know what Ube is, it's purple potato, like sweet potato or something like that. Anyways, uh, yes, thank you, everybody, for joining us. We do have a special guest with us today. We have Diane Goldstein from Leap. Uh, we're going to be talking about all sorts of stuff with a, a big focus on the upcoming menthol cigarette ban. Uh, but before we get into all of that juicy goodness, uh, Alex does have some legislative updates for all of us. Kelly Bell, Ube rules. Yes, I agree. I like Ube. It's good stuff. Uh, so what do you got for us, Alex, before we get into all the, the meat and potatoes, the meat and ube of this show? Um, yeah, well, really quickly so we can get into it. Um, uh, for folks who uh, don't live in Evanston, Illinois, um, if you have friends, please let them know that Evanston is moving forward with a an all-out flavor ban. Uh, we have a call to action up on our site. We have pretty light membership in Evanston. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the more people we can get involved, the better. Um, and, uh, so that, that's, that's out in the world. We've sent out our, our emails and hopefully getting people engaged, uh, but the more, the merrier. Um, and I of course didn't bring up the call to action so that I could look at when this is, uh, happening. I think this, this coming week, uh, I think Wednesday is, uh, when the sort of the final hearing, this has moved pretty rapidly through the process. So, um, Evanston, Illinois, if you live there or know somebody who does tell them to go to our website casa.org c-a-s-a-a.org and uh, look under get involved and state and local issues and you'll find the call to action there um so uh any help with and and Kristen has put the link in chat as well uh the other thing that may or may not be firing up uh at the federal level uh now that the house has selected a speaker um uh, they're moving forward with passing budget legislation uh, and once again, the usual suspects, Dick Durbin and um, Raja Krishnamurthy have sponsored a bill that uh, claims to do equalization for, for all tobacco products, basically trying to treat everything like it's a cigarette. Um, they've failed miserably at this in the past and once again, have not made any changes. Uh, and so uh, it, that call to action is active. Haven't heard anything that... Um, suggests that this is going to be taken seriously, but that doesn't mean that this isn't an opportunity to message on the issue and get information in front of lawmakers. Um, and you never know uh, that they keep throwing this at the wall and seeing if it sticks. So um, uh, opposition to to that tax is, is definitely needed. Um, so well, we've had a lot of great participation so far, and we haven't even sent out an email blast. So thanks to Nick Green for, for featuring that on on your channel um, and getting people involved. So those are the two big things that we're watching this week. Um, get involved, tell your friends, and uh, and thanks. Awesome. All right. Now that we're through the legislative rundown, you know, I kind of miss the days where I would do like whole episode, like podcasts of just the legislative rundown, and I don't do them anymore. Anyways, now that we're through all of that, I think we are ready. I'm going to do it, Kristen. I'm going to do it. I know her finger is on the trigger for this bumper, but I'm going to do it. All right. Are you guys ready for our guest? Let's bring her in. Hey, 
And today we are joined by Diane Goldstein from Leap. Uh, before we really get into the bulk of this conversation, Diane, if you would be so kind as to uh, just give an introduction for yourself, what you do, your experience in all of this um, for all of our viewers. Absolutely. First of all, thank you guys so much for um, having me and my organization on. Uh, for those that I follow on on Twitter, very familiar that I do tons of social media around the issue of bans, you know, prohibition. And so our organization, Law Enforcement Action Partnership, was founded in 2002. Back then, we were called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and we were focused pretty clearly just on drug policy. And what's been interesting is, is we go back 13 years to the start of the menthol ban issues with the federal government. We have been calling out not just state and local legislators, but also federal legislators going back um, over or 10 years plus at this point, because our organization really believes that prohibition is going to be problematic and and whether it's you know caffeine or nicotine or what or unregulated drugs because what we feel is that all substances need to be sensibly regulated in, in some aspects we um, leap for years has talked about drug control policies as lacking any control because of prohibition what we do is we give control, to bad guys in many aspects by not taking on the challenges of regulation. Yeah, and I, um, I, I, I think for for us, a, a natural next next question is, um, you know, is Leap getting involved at all in the the flavor bans that we see beyond cigarettes and and flavored cigars? Have you engaged uh, local, state, and even with FDA with regard to uh, banning flavors in, in smoke free nicotine products? Yeah, absolutely. Is Leap is a firm supporter of tobacco harm reduction, as we are a firm supporter of all harm reduction. So currently, and I don't know if you guys are aware, but um, our street started an integrated harm reduction coalition. Uh, that's fabulous. And uh, one of the things that they do is they focus not just on tobacco harm reduction, but what they're trying to do is introduce tobacco harm reduction in the same fashion that we've done harm reduction for all other drugs, right? And so I think it's really critically important to have all the stakeholders at the table and whether they're planning on banning uh, flavors in, in e-cigarettes, in uh, vapes, or in cigars or cigarettes, all that's going to do is create a, a real robust um, illicit market. And, you know, we just saw this, I think I just uh, tweeted out an article in Australia, right? Australia has total bans. And what you are seeing there is that the cops in Australia are basically saying, this isn't working. And look at the issue is, is they've recently had arsons and murders associated with the illicit tobacco trade. And if, if um, legislators in the United States don't think that's coming, they're obtuse and naive is the nicest thing I can say. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think often, you know, when we talk about this issue, I've been across from people on radio shows who are very dismissive of the, the sort of perils of an illicit market. Um, it seems to get downplayed by activist groups and lawmakers. But I, I, you know, going into this and preparing for 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 this this show, um, one of the things I, I wanted to maybe reaffirm is, you know, when we talk about marginalized communities, underserved communities. Um, at least, you know, I, I don't know if it was a trope or if it was the real deal, but, you know, coming up, I understood that, you know, these are neighborhoods, communities where there isn't a lot of opportunity. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, specific to FDA's claims that this is only going to be enforced against retailers and manufacturers, when we talk about underserved communities, uh, those those retailers are are it's a little different. It's not a brick and mortar shop. It's people who are are looking to you know they're they're going into business like anybody else and trying to put food on their table and pay their rent. It just happens to be that that their particular uh, trade is is illegal. So is you know having had experience on the ground, is this the case? And and what what do you see in terms of people getting caught up in this who? you know, otherwise would have been selling a legal product? Um, you know, frankly, is um, there's a couple really interesting things is the FDA was not talking about police on the ground until a couple of years ago when we actually had a, a meeting with uh, a, a representative of the domestic uh, White House council that was attached to the FDA on the issue of equity, right? And we brought up this issue um, really clearly is that although the FDA is saying that there's not going to be any local or state enforcement, we know that's not how it works. The minute the FDA ban happens on a federal level, it's going to encourage every state to enact some type of legislation that are going to ban these products. And frankly, right now, you know, you just got to go to California. They aren't doing any enforcement at all. And, and I think that there was an article recently about, you know, all the detrimental impact uh, in California based on the ban. We have that same evidence right now in the state of Massachusetts it is um, I know in Massachusetts in the last couple of years their uh, task force is now suggesting that maybe it's time to criminalize people for simple possession as one way of alleviating the illicit problem and so you know once again we're relying on failed strategies I mean if the United States wanted to end smoking as they know it or end any type of illicit drug use or substance use disorder around any product is prohibition isn't doing it. In fact, it's fueling it because I, I talk all the time about, you know, we're all drug users. Let's just be very clear. Nicotine, caffeine, you know, aspirins, um, cannabis, it, it, I don't care. I don't think I have ever met anyone who has never used some type of drug. So we have to start really doing assessments on how we regulate based maybe on risk factors. And we don't do that. We really have to start treating folks from a public health perspective. 
and tobacco harm reduction is clearly a win for public health. I, you know, I, I think I just saw you guys did that great uh, graphic about teen smoking just being reduced tremendously. And, and I'm looking at, at Twitter right now, specifically at Chauncey Gardner's because I love the work that Chauncey does here. You know, any tobacco product is now at a 50 year low. Nicotine is at a 50 year low. Cigarette use has dropped 90% over the past decade. Nicotine vapes have dropped 61% over the past four years. And that's just for teenagers. And so once again, we're creating this huge moral panic. The what about the kids? You know, the kids are all right. The kids are actually kind of boring right now. They drink less. They have less sex. They don't go out as much as they used to do that, you know, because of very appropriate harm reduction services around the issues of sex is there's less abortions going on. There's when you look at it as a whole is what's really going on here. This is Mike Bloomberg's private fetish. It's just the best way of describing it. You have a, a bazillionaire who is wielding his money in a way that doesn't make sense. And I think we can all go back and take a look and say, yes, the tobacco industry targeted communities of color with menthol, but how many years ago was that? You know, there's, there's all sorts of regulatory issues that have occurred. And I just, you know, is tobacco controls just the new drug war, right? is as we're moving from sensibly regulating cannabis or psychedelics, looking at decriminalizing other substances, we've recognized the public health interventions are the best interventions. Why are we about to hand a $30 billion flavored market um, to cartels? Mm. Yeah, and uh, I... <clears throat> Not to to abrupt, I think this is not to abruptly change the subject, but uh, moving along here, I think you know one of the reasons why we wanted you and and, and Leap to to join us on on our our podcast here was, um, you know, I think one of the things that seems to be underrepresented in this conversation, first of all, I, I think we're, we've already sort of set the table here for how you know the you know consumers the citizens are affected by this this rule or law or prohibition um but also i you know i was in in preparing for this i went back and watched some leap videos and i i uh, i watched uh, i think it was your 24 20th anniversary live stream uh with detective sergeant neil woods retired mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that you guys that, that he brought up and, and you guys discussed was the effect that these policies have on cops uh right and, and I, I remember, I think it was 2015 or 2016, New York City was looking at an ordinance that would ban smoking in cars with a minor present. And I was impressed that law enforcement show up. I don't know if it was LEAP or it might have been um, uh, Reverend Sharpton's uh, National Action Network. Yeah. Uh, several law enforcement groups have gotten involved in this discussion. And, and you guys discussed that, you know, at least from his experience, it sounded like he had to come to grips with being a soldier in the drug war and enforcing laws that, that, you know, law enforcement professionals see as unjust. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? What, you know, your members have experienced, what you've experienced in, in having to enforce these laws? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, my law enforcement career started in 1983 and I retired in 2004. 
And, you know, the height of the drug war, the crack cocaine disparities issues, and even interesting enough from a tobacco is um, thinking about how we moved and banned um, tobacco use inside public buildings, bars, restaurants. And I remember this because I was an officer, not a sergeant when, when this happened, like there was like a mini revolution you know, in our police department that we were going back to our bosses and saying, this is ridiculous. You're sending us out to cite people uh, for cigarettes or if they refuse is if you think about it in what I always tell legislators is a law, no matter how benign it may appear on the surface, you know, uh, thinking about Ocean City, Maryland and the no vape, right? or smoking inside Central Park, you know, things that we have have gone south. And, um, you know, we, in, in many aspects, um, felt like if we got sent to a call, we'd go in and just tell people, hey, you know, there's no smoking anymore. Can, can you please stop? Let's cooperate. And try to use people skills to sell the policy, but I absolutely refuse to write people citations. There were other ways. I think that there's more powerful ways to do it. And, and I think what happens is then you start thinking about, there's a lot of cops that smoke. And, and so now, you know, there's our police officers who um, there was a period of time, very interesting enough from a workman's comp perspective, where specifically for the fire department and for some law enforcement agencies that as you were coming on, they were basically looking at your health history and if you were a smoker or not. And that could be used to not hire you potentially, especially in the fire services, because cancer in, in California is basically considered part of the job as an exposure for firefighters, mm -hmm. right? And, and so, but it, it, every, every time I, I engage with legislators on this issue or other kind of police reform transformation type bills is having to educate them and saying, you know, legislators think that creating laws is going to solve a problem. And it doesn't a lot of times, unless they understand what the unintended consequences are. And then it's about hey, you realize that if something goes south, you're putting cops in a position to have to hurt someone, including killing someone, Eric Garner, okay? Um, or having a cop get hurt pretty bad over something that we should be treating from a policy perspective from a public health intervention. Get cops out of public health investigations. Yeah, and I, I think and you've also kind of touched on something. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand sort of the, the, the there's that progression. You know, I, I had a, a roommate who was, uh, he had a trespassing charge that turned into a warrant and right. he was arrested because I, he spent two weeks in, in, you know, the city jail because I didn't get to shoveling the snow off my sidewalks in time. And, uh, you know, fortunately, everything went peacefully and there was no escalation. 
<clears throat> but you know, one of the things that that uh, another thing that's sort of missing from this conversation, and I, I don't think a lot of people wrap their heads around it, is how can a simple just approaching someone escalate quickly into risk to the officer, risk to the to citizens, um, and and turn into something more than a, a just a warning or you know a ten or twenty dollar fine. That's right, and 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 that's exactly it. But you know, even. Even with that, should we be using law enforcement to find people for public health purposes? There's there's that whole other issue. And, and you know, people um, forget that even infractions, in particular, depending on your, your locality, your state, is can result in really bad consequences and outcomes. You know, I think about, you know, a, a citation, let's say, we go out and we cite someone for possession of a vape. Like, let's say that uh, down the road, Massachusetts says, we're going to start citing people. We've made it a violation of law to possess these types of items. So we start citing people. And even though it's supposed to be an infraction, if they don't take care of it, it rolls into a warrant. In California in particular, if you don't take care of your infractions, what they do is they withhold your driver's license, hmm. right? And so now, especially with marginalized communities that are trying to exist because of poverty and other socioeconomic issues, you're taking someone's ability to get to their job away from them, then they get fired. You know, there's this, this complete vicious circle that occurs or... In California in particular, one of the things that California has done in the past is if you don't pay your tickets, not only can you potentially go to warrant, but they also send you to collections. Mm. And now your credit history is impacted, right? And and as Rifleman says, for a completely victimless crime. Yeah. There's and and so we, I think in many aspects it is um, as citizens, and I'm the same way, is we forget that we need to participate in the civil process, in designing legislation, in ensuring that our voices are heard and that our legislators understand it. Um, you know, I was in a meeting with Durban staff um, what was it, six weeks ago and some, some other folks. And I think I was so appalled because um, their minds were completely made up. They didn't even want to hear about the policing issues, how things can go south. And what they blamed it on was rogue cops and unprofessionalism and mm. totally discounted the big policy issues. They just don't care or they're willfully ignorant of how things work on the ground. Yeah, that's I, and I guess, you know, Dick Durbin aside, uh, how have lawmakers received this mess? Or do you do you find some some sympathy and empathy in, in among lawmakers uh, and, and hopefully people like Dick Durbin are a bit of an outlier? Um, how, how's that going? Do, are we making any strides in, in communicating this to officials? You know, I think we are, but, you know, I think um, we're so polarized at the federal level right now.
that I, that I I find it incredibly disturbing that both sides of the aisle are using this as a wedge issue mm. to support policies or against you know particular candidates. We're a C three, so we don't endorse candidates. We try not to to um, weigh in 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 particular areas, and we're we're very very careful. But I I think you know it it concerns me when I see this issue being treated as a way to weaponize politics versus doing the right thing for constituents, right? And this should be a bipartisan issue, and it's not. It is, it is really, really um, interesting and fascinating to me that, that there are, in fact, some legislators who get it, but who have also said, hey, we don't have the political cover you know, we need help in getting political cover to to help push back. And so I think from a consumer perspective, that's one of the most important things that you guys are doing very clearly is every time I walk into, you know, some legislator's office, what I always find the most impactful is if I walk in with someone who has a story and then I can just validate the the damage that the policy caused and whether it's a tobacco ban you know where where something went really south with the law enforcement contact or a pretextual stop or cannabis legalization is having the voices of constituents is really really impactful yeah and i i'm glad you guys are having that opportunity to 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 take people in and, and and get those stories um, in, in front of, in front of lawmakers. Um, I, uh, moving abruptly along, <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that we see in, in the, in the vapor market is, uh, you know, no one has ever really gotten a really good hold on how big the market is and sort of by extension, I don't think we have a good understanding of how big the illicit market is. Um, do you, do you have any, any, uh, any, any good resource to, for people to understand how, how big and deeply entrenched this is, or, um, w- what's a good way to, to paint the picture and, and, and tell the story about just how big the illicit market is and, and how much we could expect it to grow? You know, um, so probably, you know, the Mackinac Center had a great article, but it's a few years old. So let's let's think about this. Um, you know, America's illicit smokes market set to get larger. And we don't know. Right. I don't you know, I, I think this is the, the real hard estimate is I, I continue to see, I think, um, out of one of one of the borders, I don't know if it was Texas. They just um, ended up intercepting, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of illicit cigarettes coming up from the border, and um, you know, it, it's it, it it could be, you know, anywhere twenty to thirty percent at the at the low end. Um, at the high end, I don't know, because because we don't know what's getting through, right? You know, I sit there and I think about um, 
the analogy of the DEA who traditionally for years says that they capture like 15% of the illicit market in the United States for, for drugs that are coming in. And that's way too high because really it's probably three to 7%. Mm. It's going to be the same thing if we go to a total ban because it's actually probably easier to, to smuggle vapes in because of, of the size or cigarettes. And the cartels are already doing it. You know, we're seeing it. We're seeing it not just in the United States, but we're seeing it across the world. Yeah, and, and you know, speaking of the cartels, I know that the, I think it was the Sineola cartel recently right. uh, with regard to, to fentanyl, uh, basically laid down this really uh, extreme warning saying, if you're trafficking fentanyl, we're gonna kill you kind of thing. And we're just ordering everybody to stop. Um, but one of the narratives that surfaced and, and this is surfaced, and, and this is mainly being promoted by one incumbent tobacco company, um, is this idea that, it, that, you know, China and Mexico are putting fentanyl in vapor products. Um, have you heard anything credible to back that up or? No, or is this it's false. It's yeah. false. I, I, and I have like, it, it's, and I push back on that narrative. Right. But I, I think that the um, unregulated vape market is problematic. I'm going to be very honest with you, I, I because it, there's public health interests, and that's why I think that the FDA has absolutely failed, failed in the PMTA issue, right? When when Reynolds can't even get what is it views <laughs> to get uh, it on the market, then no one's going to be able to. Yeah, that's I you know our our concern for for as long as we've known that that FDA would be stepping in and regulating the market was you know first of all none of the open system products were going to be able to be authorized right. uh, under this regime and 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 of course the you know the first draft of the finalized rule included a flavor ban that uh, the White House Office of Management and Budget uh, uh, redlined. Uh, fortunately, um, it was actually a great, it was a boon for our membership. Uh, we, I think we gained like 40,000 people in a weekend because everybody thought right. that this flavor ban was coming through. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm losing track of where I was going with all of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, even I think camel snooze was, a, a, a modified risk application, not a, right. not for a new product. They, they made it under the wire with that, but. Um, that I think sat for five years and eventually Reynolds uh, withdrew it because it wasn't going anywhere. Um, right. So, you know, FDA has created a really strict bottleneck that, uh, you know, in, in most of the country, you can still find vape shops and, and they are, a lot of these retailers are flying under the radar. Uh, right. and, and I think, you know, there was, I, I had tweeted back at somebody in, in New York. So I live in New York state. Well, actually both Logan and I are in New York. Um, and, and, I think somebody, a lawmaker had tweeted something out about, you know, and the state police are going to enforce this. And I was just sort of reminded of, you know, I live in the North country, which is very rural, also very low income. Right. Um, and, and just thinking of, you know, the, the cops who have quit smoking with the help of their local vape shop. And now they're being tasked with uh, enforcing a ban on products. Uh, and I, I just can't really see that going the way that lawmakers expect. Right. Right. You know, it's interesting because I'm looking at this, this uh, MACNAC uh, article and you talk about New York 
And in 2019, okay, so think about, it's probably much more substantial now. They documented that New Yorkers consume 266 million smuggled packs yep. of cigarettes in, in the state. And I'm doing some work with some law enforcement folks and, um, you know, this is antidote, but two of them, uh, one's a, a retired NYPD uh, guy then who went to the ATF and another guy was a, a, in a federal agency as well. And they were in New York and they purchased cigarettes without tax stamps, but when they opened them up, is they were filled with things like sawdust, mm. right? The, you know, so there's, when you start thinking about, you know, how should we govern and what's the role of, of governance is look at what we're creating is, you know, we are legitimately endangering not just teenagers who are going to access illicit products uh, in some way, but wouldn't we rather have safe products so if they do access them, then at least we know we've mitigated the, the potential harms. And I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that kids should be allowed to smoke, right? That's, you know, but is should we be using the criminal justice system in order to prevent them from smoking? Yeah. And I, you know, that actually moves into, uh, uh, I don't want to drag this out just to fill an hour. So I think we're, we're moving towards the sort of conclusion here. But for me, you know, I don't want to leave things on a bad note here. We know this is a lot of doom and gloom, but uh, in your experience and, and, and work with, with uh, through LEAP, are there, are there police departments throughout the country that are doing it right? And what, what, what have they, what changes have they made, perhaps bringing, you know, certain types of people on staff? Uh, deputizing certain people with more actual public health experience. Are, are there any municipalities that are, are doing a good job at, at making changes to make this a public health issue? Uh, on tobacco? Absolutely not. In fact, I will tell you is law enforcement it has no clue this is happening. I just got back from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, been working a lot on this issue in the last year with multiple different law enforcement folks. And when you sit down and actually talk to a police chief or someone in a particular agency and say, this is coming. They look at you like, what? Hmm. It, there, there's, you know, there's this real disconnect between <clears throat> the federal response and state and local law enforcement. It, and, and the, you know, the, again, I'm, I'm just going to say is, is I think back leap has been doing this, for 13 years on flavor bands alone, menthol bands. Um, we started doing a bunch of work in California back in the day and have, have moved across multiple states and, and even in some ways now internationally sitting there and, and looking at the issues because this is not just a, a US issue, it's international, is um, law enforcement needs to move more into understanding public health and its role in policing, but we shouldn't be the first responders to those issues, right? Is, you know, how do, how do, how do we sensibly regulate and reduce the footprint of policing? You know, are there other ways of doing it? 
Yes, I think that there are. And one of those means that the FDA is going to have to roll out tobacco harm reduction products in, in, in its entirety. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a real difficult situation. And um, I know that there's a lot of cigarettes, a lot of e-cigarettes, vapes that are coming in out of China and out of Mexico. And, you know, frankly, I don't know if those products are safe in some aspects or, you know, they may have other things in them that not fentanyl, right? Not cannabis, but there may be other chemicals or other things in them that it are, is going to hurt or kill someone eventually. Yeah, I think probably, you know, we, we, we've obviously talked about this a lot whenever we talk about, you know, the illicit market for, for vapes, especially, um, we, we tend to remind folks that, you know, the, the, the recipe for making an e-liquid is pretty simple. It's, it's pretty hard mm -hmm. to screw it up. Um, so the, the big concerns are going to be whether or not people making these products or have good manufacturing practices in place. That's right. Certainly, no one's out there on the illicit market enforcing those things. Um, so you know, there's always that risk of contamination, certainly within the devices, uh, people using the wrong kind of solder or, you know, it, you heating something up that is leaching into the liquid. Um, those right. are concerns. But so far, I think we've been we've been lucky, honestly, uh, that that we haven't seen any kind of mass injury type of uh, situation. Um, you know, other than the the lung injury cases from 2019, which I refuse to use CDC's. Uh, They're uh, cannabis. That. that was they all cannabis. It was all cannabis, and and it was a direct result yeah. of drug prohibition. And 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 the CDC and the FDA and Bloomberg and Tobacco Free Kids have used that lie, right? There was a there was a book years ago called. Um, lies, damn lies, and drug war lies, something. And it was a statistical analysis by some researchers who went through all the, 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 the stats relative to the drug war and how they were manipulated mm -hmm. in order to show harm. And I will tell you, this is exactly what our government is doing right now. And they've been doing it for years. This is not just because of Biden Harris. They, you know, that they've been doing this going back to Richard Nixon on the issue of illicit substances. Is is science has not been done in the way that it should have. And and I'm guessing, have you guys seen that? Um, was it H H H S just uh, put out a notice that um, they've given a researcher out of Rutgers? Um, even though the article said it was 600,000, it's not, it's a multi-year and it's for 2.4 million to research misinformation to the black community from the tobacco industry. And mm. so this is all about this policing message, right? And so I, I would again tell you that um, it's not unusual for the federal government to do it. It's got nothing to do with if it's Democrat or Republican. It is that we continue to not use science adequately in order to um, make policy. Instead, we use it by cherry picking to 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 promote moral panics. And what about the what about the kids? Yeah, that's and and 
I know, especially when we're talking about, uh, you know, there have been a lot of these sort of researching misinformation, especially on Twitter. You've probably seen over the years, you know, a lot of folks involved in, in tobacco harm reduction, yeah. emphatically restating, I'm not a bot, I'm a real person, I'm not here to spam mm -hmm. and, and promote some lie. <clears throat> and and so I, I that that's actually really concerning to hear that because I, I think in, in, you know, that's almost sort of a top-down approach to, uh, you know, crafting messages that the, the, the black community will, uh, that will resonate with the black community. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, nobody condones any company, you know, purveying misinformation about their products. And, and to actually right. to your earlier point about tobacco companies targeting specific groups, uh, if people still think that's going on, then that means that something's broken with the Tobacco Control Act, uh, at that's least in right. the United States. That, that brought all the tobacco companies to heel and and really ended a lot of that marketing and now you know tobacco marketing is really just something that you see you either sign up for it to, to receive it in your inbox or That's you right. see it at the, the convenience store um and i think there's a way to twist that to say you know higher density of tobacco retailers in black communities and so on but you know those are just again those are people trying to you know just work and and have a job and 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 be a part of their community um so um uh, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I did want to kind of take us out on a high note here and um, get into maybe if, it, you know, I, I think it's, it's certainly beneficial to say broadly, let's treat, let's treat all substance use as a public health matter, not a criminal matter. Um, but maybe more specifically, you know, in, in other than FDA sort of, uh, what we would love to see is uh, adopting some sort of standards-based regulation, meaning that manufacturers right. meet kind of minimum standards and, and, and through a notification process like they have in the, in the UK, bring their products to market. Um, but, you know, shy of that, which we think will take years for FDA to wrap their head around uh, and certainly changes made through Congress. Um, what are the alternatives to all of this? And uh, I, I think, um, one of the things I have written in my note here, it, in my notes, is um, when we talk about drug use, uh, there seems to be this tendency to silo everything off, meaning right. that, you know, regulations for tobacco need to be different than cannabis or cocaine or heroin. Um, can you, do, do you have thoughts on that? And, and what's a better way to look at this more holistically? Well, you know, I, I think we're always going to have to look at um, markets and each market is going to require some assessment because I don't think you can treat tobacco like you treat heroin, right? Let's just be clear. It is, um, it, we're not going to ever see heroin stores on the corner, but if we actually blew the drug war up and understood public health interventions, we would have readily available heroin-assisted treatment programs like Switzerland and multiple other countries. We would have, you know, overdose prevention centers. We would have naloxone uh, basically available at a very cheap rate. We would have methadone to be prescribed by all doctors and not just at a methadone clinic. You know, it, it's and, and I think this is, this is the problem is all our systems 
are siloed away from each other, Alex. And you said that very clearly. Law enforcement is siloed away from public health. Public health is siloed away from behavioral health. Behavioral health is siloed away from, you know, homelessness and housing. And so we have got to start looking at all the associated issues. I mean, I think about, you know, let's have the conversation about kids. You know, there's a tremendous amount of, of parents right now. And, and I've talked to a few who basically say that their kids are using nicotine almost in a similar way like Adderall, right? It, it is because it helps focus them. And so, you know, do we want a combustible cigarette or if a, if a parent as, you know, as a parent, because I have a 32 year old, if, if there is a safe product, I would want my child to have access to that safe product and not to buy it out on the street and maybe work with a medical provider uh, but that also, you know, begets the question is, is our healthcare system is in complete disarray. We need universal, universal healthcare, you know, as a kind of center right person, I think um, we should have universal healthcare. It would do a ton relative to substance use disorders, whether we're talking tobacco or heroin. Yeah. Yeah, and, and to, to your point, I, I actually stood next to a woman at a at a tra at a, a, a convention once, and uh, I think her she had allowed her son, who at the age of fifteen or sixteen, to start vaping, and uh, they found he he just sort of naturally came off of his ADHD medication, uh, and and I offer that you know as anecdote story, right. but it is certainly something that we've heard from other people and. And the nootropic effects of, of nicotine are, are researched. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, I, I think there are academics who like to chew nicotine gum to maintain their right. focus. Um, so there is that, that utility, that use case for, for nicotine. Um, and the other thing that I, I think is, uh, we've talked about this a lot, is uh, especially when we talked about youth, um, looking at the, the population at large, Somewhere between 15 to 20% of people use drugs, no matter what the policies are. Uh, and I imagine there's a very similar number among youth. Um, and uh, I think there's some other people who've written about, I should come to this discussion with actual numbers, um, but I know Stanton Peel has written about this. Dr. Carl right. Hart is also writing about this specific to, to drugs um, other than nicotine. Um, but uh, it, it, I think it does, this is this is part of changing the conversation in there. Nobody nobody should be out there promoting these things to young people. But right. we do have to acknowledge that, you know, I the first time I smoked dope and dropped acid and drank alcohol, I was 13 years old. Right. And there, as far as I know, there was nobody pushing that on me. I was just curious. Um, right. and, and so, you know, that that's kind of the reality of the situation and, and more. Um, uh, I think focused approaches that are more compassionate and empathetic are, are the way to, to move through that. You know, uh, so it's so interesting because I, I just had this, this leading thought, especially with the kids and the adult issue. 
and I'm sure you guys have seen it because you guys testify, your consumer-based group testifies at the state, the local, maybe even, you know, sending letters in at the federal level doing the FDA issues, right? And I think about how um, government or people like, you know, tobacco-free kids uses kids, right? And in, in California in particular, I remember, you know, um, testifying against a bill that was a, a flavor ban bill years ago. And all, all these teenagers came out of the woodwork that were basically given talking points. And please protect me. And this is the only thing that's going to protect me. And it, it's just so disingenuous, right? And it's like, wait a minute, we, you know, and, and again, going back to that, that graphic that you guys did, why have we created a moral panic over something that kids really aren't even using? It's just a blatant lie. And that's not how we should govern. And, and so, you know, is I'm, I'm very much a um, smart government versus overregulation. Um, I think, you know, you can see the same things going on in the cannabis industry relative to the tobacco industry, high taxes, promoting, bolstering the illicit market. Um, you know, we have to be really careful with our, with our policies. And I think there's a, there's a lot of conflict there that um, on both sides of the aisle, that is how, how do we get to this place where we're never going to be drug free? We're never, you know, it is if someone told me that they were going to take my coffee and my caffeine away, I would be importing coffee beans from out of the country or finding someone on the street to buy them from. It's just, that's just how it is. It's human nature. And so, you know, I want all our products to be safe, regulated, to allow the free market to competitively, you know, uh, be able to compete against larger corporations. You know, it's, it's it, incredibly complex, but it could be, you know, the more holistic approach is let's not repeat mistakes of the past. And we continue to do so. And, you know, every time I, I talk to legislators or police chiefs, whether it's about drugs or alcohol prohibition or tobacco ban. I go back, there's a, a famous police chief by the name of August Bulmer that was, you know, from the prohibition era, who back then said law enforcement should not be involved in the investigation of any moralistic crimes. And he specifically addressed the issue of alcohol, gambling, sex work, and drugs. And you could actually put tobacco and nicotine products in, in that same thing because right now the stigma is so much worse if you're a tobacco user than than ever and and I'm not saying that stigma doesn't play maybe a, a, an important role but it shouldn't be used to govern I mean I hate smoking I'm, I'm gonna be real honest my mom finally quit she's 83 years old lives with me she finally quit this year after smoking for 55 years, I always was like, get out of the house. If you're going to smoke, you get out of the house. And she did a cold turkey without e-cigs or anything, right? 
But if she wanted e-cigs, I want to be able to walk into a place where I can respect that the product is going to do what it needs to do and it isn't going to harm her. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think I think we've covered a lot of bases, but before we uh, wrap it up, is there are there anything any 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 little bits that we maybe didn't focus on that you'd like to talk about some more? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's so important. I wrote an article in Filter Magazine. Um, the last one that I wrote was really talking about how the tobacco ban is really going to be the next the new drug war. And and I think what I, is really important that legislators miss is as this ban happens and you're so right you know as we police people in communities uh, that are suffering from socioeconomic issues whether it's rural appalachia or you know new york or california is that there are going to be people that are going to be stepping up and selling this product because consumers want it and legislators need to understand is that you are authorizing us, the police, to use state-sanctioned violence up to and including killing people if something goes wrong. And and I think, you know, is they're trying, the FDA is trying to mitigate it. Certain members of Congress are saying that's overblown that it's rhetoric, it's ideological. And, and I think as we continue to move forward through this thing, every time someone gets hurt by law enforcement because of a tobacco ban issue, we need to hold our legislators accountable for that in some fashion because people are gonna get hurt. Australia is a classic example. Arsonists, you have cartels, you have Organized crimes in Australia now battling for the illicit cigarette tobacco market. Yeah, yeah, well put. I I think and and I I hope that we don't. I always I know we, you know we're a crisis oriented species. Nobody's going to do anything until Perfect. the building's on fire. And I, it, I I always maintain some level of hope that you know reason, <clears throat> data, and science will win the day, and we can we can head this off at the pass before somebody gets you know killed in another illegal chokehold. Um, so, um, yeah, I, it, it, it's a very grim picture that, that I think you've painted, but, uh, I, I will, will maintain that little nugget of hope that, that cooler heads will prevail. Um, and so I don't know if there were any questions in the chat that we might have missed. Um, if there was any, Kristen is, is monitoring things, uh, for us. So if we have anything that needs to be, uh, addressed, we can do that here in the closing minutes. Um, Otherwise, seeing none, uh, I do want to thank you, Diane, for joining us today. Uh, I hope all of our, everybody watching this, everybody watching on the replay, go check out the Law Enforcement Action Partnership uh, and, uh, and, and get involved. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's kind of it for me. I'm going to leave Logan with the uh, outro stuff. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you, Diane. I was prepared to agree with you a lot this this show and i i agreed with you the entire way uh every every bit of that uh from drugs to tobacco to sex work to every every bit of that um so thank you thank you from the bottom of my heart for for everything you just said here today and as we went along i always know that alex and i are are almost 90 percent on the same page but every 
every time I wrote down something I wanted to ask you, it was the next thing out of Alex's mouth. Um, so, so I basically got to be here along with chat and everybody else just for the conversation. And that was perfectly fine with me. Um, but yes, thank you. Uh, thank you. And, and thank you to leap, uh, for all that you, you folks are doing over there. Um, and I would, I would, I think, you know, Alex would agree with me to, to love to have you back on, um, at some point in the future, um, to continue this conversation. Um, but yeah, just thank you. And thank you uh, to everybody in chat who is here for all of this. And thank you to the replay crew who's going to be tuning in to to catch this later. Um, I guess I, can, I guess I can give them the spiel, though, Alex. Are you Go ready for, for the spiel? All right, you guys. Uh, thank you one last time. Uh, head over to Kasa.org, C-A-S-A-A.org. Uh, become a member. It's absolutely free. Uh, we promise not to blow up your emails, only with stuff you need to know when you need to know it. You can check out our donations. You can check out uh, our merch store, which uh, Danielle, our president of the board, has designed some some incredible merch out there. Uh, so you guys get to be walking billboards of tobacco harm reduction. Uh, and while you're there, we spoke a lot about, Diane spoke about people's stories and your testimonies and how important your voice is. We have an entire collection of testimonies, over 13,000 testimonies that we've collected at CASA. So please share your stories. Your voice is important, and that is what we're here to amplify. Remember, guys, the board and, and Alex and me, we're not CASA. All of us are CASA. Everybody here is CASA. All 200,000-plus members are CASA. We are all CASA. So, so join in, uh, become a member, sign up, do all the things, click all the buttons, and I think, I think that is going to do it. So thank you guys so much. And again, it is, I cannot emphasize enough. The ray of hope is people. People with stories for me is the ray of hope. It's what brings us all to whatever it may happen to be, right? And so what you guys are doing is about saving lives. And ultimately, any drug control policy should be about saving people's lives. And that's, I think, the, the thing that shines real clear with your organization. And, and so I, you guys have a lot to be proud of. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. All right. I guess that is going to do it. Um, so, yeah, just one last time. Thank you to Diane Goldstein for joining us here today. And thank you, everybody in chat and in the replay crew. I think that is going to do it. That's going to wrap us up and we will let Kristen take us away. Hope everybody out there enjoys the rest of their weekend and uh, everybody be excellent to yourselves and to each other. We will see you guys in two weeks when we are back. Thanks, everybody.